Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Thinking about what this episode's about, we're talking about stouts. We're going to do an exploration of stouts, actually, these next three months. This month, we want to talk about imperial stouts. So with Origins that fall in the UK, Pat, we had to phone a friend on this one. Yeah, we've got our good friend Nick Smith back on the program. Longtime listeners will remember that maybe a year and a half ago, Nick was on to do a two-part pod on the history of IPAs, which was a lot of fun to record. So we reached out to Nick and asked him if he would come back on the show and talk about Imperial Stouts, their origins, and you know the UK side of the equation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me back on after the copious amounts of IPA consumed last time. Oh yeah, it's great to hear your voice, Nick, as always. You too. And uh, we should say that Nick is the co-founder and brewmaster at Steam Machine Brewing in Newton Acliffe in the UK, up in the Northeast. Also has a new venture called the Fellowship of Beer that I think we'll get into just a little bit at the end of our conversation. Oh, you're going to let me plug it? Oh, that's very kind of you. Absolutely. <laughs> what we want to do to begin with is just go back to the origins, I suppose, of stouts and then kind of work our way up from the 18th century up to about year 2000. So where did stouts begin, Nick? Oh, I mean, you know that I love busting a beer myth. <laughs> I lean very heavily on the research of Martin Cornell and Ron Pattinson, who are two British beer historians. I like to read widely on the subject as well. But what you do find is you find that these myths get repeated, the myths from bottle labels and the back of beer mats and some old man in the pub told me. And then just stuff that spurious brewers make up themselves over the decades and over the centuries. So yes, where did stouts begin? Well, we don't know which term came first, porter or stout. Stout was being used to describe strong beers. You could have stout pale beers, you could have stout dark beers. But in terms of describing a dark beer, the term porter came first. And the city which is most famous for this is the city of London. I went there once, actually. Um, the mayor wasn't a cat and the paved stones weren't made of gold. I felt lied to. <laughs> <laughs> Every uh, decade or so, I guess you got to venture down out of the north. That's it. The... Yeah. So my first myth I've got for you, you may see the myth of the three threads beer. I have heard of that. It's kind of a bit spurious that there was this mythical beer, which was a blend of three different barrels, which, you know, isn't too far out of the imagination. But what was more common and is still practiced in lambic brewing is you blend your young beer with your old beer. And that was quite often being done by the publicans. So this was being blended on site at the pubs. At the time, the reason that these beers were brown is because of inferior malting practices. Now, it's often said that all malt was brown malt until the invention of pale malt, which was killed. It's not quite true. And if you look at like the farmhouse brewing techniques and stuff like that, you, you know, it's obvious that all malt wasn't brown. It's just in the age of industrialization, 
most malt was brown. They could kiln it white, but that required a lot more energy. It required cleaner fuel, which was the coke. So pale malt was the reserve of the upper classes. And that's something we spoke about on the IPA podcast. Because of that cost of production, it wasn't for the likes of us, basically. It was for the likes of the middle and upper classes, the posh people, you know. The low-class people would have drank brown beer. Now, Porter was the nickname allegedly given because it was the porters of London who were drinking this brown beer. And what some brewers figured out they could do in like the early 1700s was they found they could just age a beer in a barrel for a year, and they ended up with this strongish 100% brown malt beer, and it would taste delightful after a year. If you kind of listen to the tasting notes of it, like being slightly vinous and stuff like that, and brown it, I mean, it sounds to all intents and purposes, kind of like an Brune or a Flanders Red, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of style of beer. This wasn't the cheapest of the cheap beer. And kind of like these porters swaggering around London were kind of like, look at me with my big pack. I'm, uh, I'm the strong man. I'm the big man. And there was, a, there was a massive amount of people who were porters in London at the time. And it, it wasn't, sometimes you see it was named after the river porters or the market porters or, you know, whatever other kind of porter. Certainly not railway porters. They were a lot later. Porterage was just a huge occupation in London, you know, stuff being carried A to B, unloading this. Whole breweries employed their own porters just to carry around the malt and carry around the barrels. And they even had their own guilds and stuff. So their drink of choice, and this was apparently a hefty amount of their sustenance as well. They would like were drinking because like thousands of calories a day in brown ale, you know. <laughs> and, and, and like allegedly even like pubs had little shelves that you could stop your pack on, lean on your pack, get your your pint of brown porter, sup it, down it, and then off you went on your merry way. Um, so allegedly that's where the term porter came from because it was the it wasn't the cheapest beer, it wasn't the the pale ales of the the middle or upper classes, but you know, you I've got a bit of money in my pocket, I carry stuff around for a living, I get the strong good stuff. That's where porter came from. How strong would those porters that we're talking about in that day have been? I think you're talking like six to seven percent typically. Okay. Looking at the OGs. Now the methods of recording aren't as accurate then. But, you know, you can look at how many like bushels to the barrel and stuff they were doing, which kind of like ties in with the kind of like the Oud Bruins as well. What's interesting is that barrel aging and blending and stuff like that is the Rodenbach Brewery actually attest that their founder learned that technique from British breweries, which is quite interesting. I think. Yeah, that's right. I've toured that place and, and they do talk yeah. about that. It might not have even been the founder, but like a couple of generations in, one of the Rodenbachs went to Britain and learned how the British blend old and young beers. And he took that idea back to Rodenbach, which is probably one of the most famous places in the world now for doing it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, it's all it's all the same. It all comes out in the wash. But, you know, this, this beer being called a porter would not have resembled anything to what we call stouts and porters these days. And that's because of the emission of roast barley, dark roasted malts, which didn't exist then. In the 1800s, so a lot of what's influenced British beer has been war, um, because it's something that traditionally we've been really good at, conquering places, killing people, pillaging resources. You know, we've all got to like have our good bits, don't we? Somebody has to do it, I guess. <laughs> Why are we always the bad guys? <laughs> well, we maybe we've taken over that role from you these days, but yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So what happened was um, to, to raise money, especially during like the Peninsula War, and um, apparently there was some stuff happening over in America as well at the same time um, as that. So, some, I don't know, something about skirmish. rowdy colonists trying to <laughs> go independent or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I like to say, who won the um, American War of Independence? Well, seeing as though there were British people, it was obviously the British, really, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, to raise money for that, they changed the point of taxation to the barley itself. So, it was to the barley before it was malted, mm. um, which meant for the first time, pale malt. After 100, 150 years of pale malt being the premium resource, it became more efficient to use pale malt rather than 100% brown malt. And that's because you could get a much better conversion of starches into sugars with the pale malt. Isn't that right? That's absolutely right. I mean, I think also around this time, things like the uh, refractometer were invented. They started to get ways they could actually measure the gravity. And then they realized, That's right. wow, this yeah. is very inefficient. What, what am I using this for? <laughs> <laughs> you'd think just from how much of a buzz you got off of the beer, you'd get this, some idea of how efficient it was. But <laughs> Apparently, yeah, that's that was always my standard measure for when I started home brewing. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. If I... <laughs> it's not a bad standard of measure, anyway, to this day. <laughs> it's like when I first started home brewing at university, people say, "How strong is it?" I'm like, I don't know, about five percent, I think. <laughs> Ish, yeah. Ish. Now, when when did the term stout porter come along, and when would you say that people? dropped the porter and just said, "This is a stout." Did that happen back in those days, or is that a more modern thing? I mean, it would depend different breweries and who was selling the beer, but the, the certainly the term stout port was still in use in like the 1850s. And okay. the term stout and porter were used interchangeably by the same breweries. And this is up until like 1890s, 1900s. They were selling two products, sometimes one labeled as a stout, one labeled as a porter, and it could be the exact same beer. Oh, interesting. So just a marketing thing in some sense. Yeah, exactly. We don't really get that distinction really until porters kind of disappear off the scene completely post-World War II, but we've jumped forward. Apologize, <laughs> we've jumped forward in the story. So what changed in terms of the ingredients, like so that that, that pale malt, so London brewers, apparently porters changed and they went very ambery colored and pale colored and people like, what are you doing? What are you messing with my pot for? You know, it doesn't taste the same. And it's because they were trying to get away with putting as much pale malt to brown malt in as they could. When people like called them out on it, they started experimenting with other things. They were like burning sugar black and unscrupulous brewers were adding stuff to the beer. But it was against the law to brew with any other grain. You know, people talk about the Reinheitsgebot in Germany, but there was a lot of other laws like that in the UK as well, dictated for what you could and could not brew with. You could only brew with barley that had been malted. And at the time, you weren't allowed to add other grains. So that's where you get black patent malt from. Black patent malt, someone said, look, if we toast this in something that's kind of akin to like a coffee roaster, and you add small portions of that to your pale malt, you can get something that's similar in color to your 100% brown malt. And that really changed stouts and pots forever, really, because that's still how we pretty much do it now, isn't it? You know, yeah. 200 years later. Yeah, for sure. So we're talking about imperial stouts. And where does the term imperial come into play? So imperial was being used for all types of beer in late 1700s, early 1800s. It was being used 
for the premium. It, you know, it was kind of like you stick a crown on it and you say, this is the imperial, you know, up the empire kind of thing. You know, it's like, this is the best of the best. Yes, it's a term of strength, but it's also a term of standard as well. So it's almost uh, like know, saying you, premium or something like that. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of is to this day as well in naming. You can think of imperial IPAs mm-hmm. uh, being like the the larger scale, more to the triple weight as far as your gravity goes. Oh, we thought that's where double IPA kind of came from, wasn't it? Because it's a bit of a mouthful to say IIPA, I always thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I always thought it was anyway, but I'm not sure. Well, I've even seen there's a brewery here in Ohio, Hop and Frog, that makes an Imperial Gosa, which seems sort of crazy, right? To take a low strength of table beer and then make it an Imperial strength. But uh, but we digress. Yeah, I can't fault Hop and Frog at anything, though. <laughs> it makes true. some outstanding beer. That's true. That's true. Especially in the stouts. Yeah. All strong beers. Yeah, Pretty much though. Yeah, for sure. So it's definitely fits their DNA. Well, you know, it's all fun games. If as long as no one loses a limb, then you know it's okay. <laughs> but we've got this connection, the imperial. I mean, we were talking about myth busting earlier. You can answer the question whether it's myth or not. But you know, the story goes that there were these very strong stouts that were imported to the Russian imperial court in Saint Petersburg. What part of that is fact, and what part of that is maybe uh, marketing? I ended up down a rabbit hole of this recently. Martin Cornell is kind of in favor of the imperial court kind of connection. However, arguing with him online, I found a fantastic blog, by the way, guys. You can Google Translate it. It's called beacult.ru. And if you do Google Translate, most of the blogs on there are by a Russian beer historian called Yuri Katunin. And he's got over 500 historical-based blog posts where he gets up Russian newspapers and stuff like that. The stuff that's appearing on there about Russian brewing and stuff like that, that's just completely weird and bizarre in terms of like raspberry beers in the 1700s and things like that, like fruit beers 200 years before Lambic brewers were thought of putting Hmm. peaches or cherries into their beers. There's a lot of fascinating stuff, but he was saying that there is no evidence for Catherine the Great ever having drunk, sampled, or attesting to, or this beer being Catherine the Great's kind of favorite beverage was the kind of thing. And he was saying that it's very well documented what Catherine the Great drank. The diaries there and the the cooks and things like that of the imperial court, you know, they document the cordials she had in the afternoon and the teas she would have, but there's no mention of stouts. But there was like a, a large British expat community in the early 1700s british culture was very there in cosmopolitan russia throughout the 1700s and you had like english style taverns you had like a big massive import market of london porters being named specifically and burton ales and burton ales it's a style of beer that doesn't exist anymore they kind of like ceased when they started brewing Burton Pale Ales and then the IPAs, but they were probably closer to like October Ales, which is almost like a barley wine type. Barley wine sweet. type beer, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, low hopped and strong. And there was like a big market for these in Russia for English beer, English ale, which is fascinating. But whether it was in the imperial court or not, there is very little evidence. So he says the first documentation in a Russian newspaper in Moscow of the mentioning like London porters is 1767. He's got like the mm. newspaper extract of this popular beer 
drunk by you know the well-to-do people of St. Petersburg is uh, yeah 1767. So it was a long-standing trade. So definitely London porters and strong London porters were being exported to Russia. Yeah. Whether Catherine the Great partook of those is much more speculative. We would have to say. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and I imagine if it was all in vogue, I imagine a few of them must have slipped their way towards her. Sure, I can see that, yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is that, you know, attaching that selling term of Russia to a beer doesn't appear for 120 years after that trade dried up, pretty much. <laughs> so it's Okay, what was the first example of someone uh, marketing their beer as a Russian imperial stout? Barclay Perkins didn't start calling their imperial stout a Russian stout till the 1920s. And then they used the term Russian imperial stout in the 1930s. And, you know, nowadays we call it imperial Russian stout. That wasn't used as a marketing term for like up and I think it was the 60s and 70s. That wasn't used as a marketing term until then. So yeah, you have this whole whole mythology of this beer based off people trying to say that, oh, yeah, we used to sell this to the Imperial Russian court with actually no historical evidence for it at all. But in terms of breweries, the research that I've done, you can correct me if this is wrong. So there was a brewery called Thrail's Anchor Brewery, which made porters and stouts, and those were exported to Russia. And then I think that became Barclay Perkins. Is that correct? I think they did. And that's their connection because that's the only mention is that um, there was a landscape painter called Joseph Farrington, who in 1796 had some strong part in Russia. And he was a diarist as well, this guy. And his friend who gave him this beer in Russia said, this beer was brewed for Catherine the Great, don't you know? Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. That beer that he was drinking, that was Thrail's later anchor. Got it. Which, you're right, through successive buyouts was Barclay and then was Barclay Perkins. And then I think eventually... Barclay Perkins and Courage merged and it became Courage Imperial Stout. Yes. Is that correct? That's right. And then up until not too long ago, you could still get Courage Imperial Russian Stout as a seasonal release. I've never had one, unfortunately. Yeah, I was reading a host by Stan Hieronymus, who's a really good beer writer, and he had gone through Michael Jackson's World Guide to Beer, like seven editions of them. And that beer, the Courage Imperial Stout, was one of maybe 15 or 20 that got all five stars or four stars every single edition. So actually, you've got a beer that's in that vein with you, do you not? I do. So this is by A. Lecoq, which teehee sounds a bit naughty, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> not even going to try to say that with a straight face. Um, this is now brewed by Harvey's. So it's Harvey's Imperial Russian Stout. But this importer, A. Lecoq, these were a big importer to Russia of lots of different types of British beer. So they were importing the Burton Ale and they were importing, they think it was, Barclay Perkins Imperial Stout to Russia, to Moscow and St. Petersburg. Even when that kind of export market dried up in the 1820s, they were like the only ones left doing it, basically. And when we planned this podcast, I was like, yeah, great, old-fashioned Imperial Stout. I love all that stuff. Yeah, great. Where am I going to get one of those? So I I put a message out on Twitter and I tagged quite a few British beer-loving people. Um, One of them was our mutual friend, Brad, who we had our bygone beers tasting with. Yeah, I remember Brad. 
really what I was hoping was that Brad had like a courage Imperial stout stashed away because he's definitely had some before. I could see that happening. And then Ron Pattinson himself did reply and said, the closest you can get is the um, Harvey's Ehrlichok Imperial Extra Double Stout Beer. Oh, perfect. So, I hope we can smell this through the microphones. <laughs> it's breaded, so if there's uh, my computer gets wet and I start screaming in <laughs> agony. Ooh. I was reading about this beer last night in the Beer Bible. I guess the first time they brewed it, they put it in bottles and they corked it. And this was uh, yeah. maybe 20 years ago. And everything was fine, but after a year, the corks started popping up and hitting the ceiling. And Oops. it turned out that they found out that in their yeast, there was a wild strain. And this is kind of in, in a, a British term. They said only when the main yeast was totally knackered after six or eight months and it died off, <laughs> did the wild yeast kick in. And and what they said is that it raised the ABV from, I think, 7.6 to 9%. So that Britannomyces really, yeah, it did something. It does smell like, have a slight funky note to it. To be honest, that, that doesn't taste breaded. Possibly ever so slightly. I mean, on the nose, it's got like all those deep tobacco, treacle. It's poured beautifully, perfect condition, actually. It smells like a great stout. It tastes like a great stout. Oh, my God, you're killing me. It looks fantastic on the screen here. I mean, For it's sure. uh, totally opaque black, and it had a really nice head when you first poured it. Yeah, it still, still does. It like hasn't really disappeared. It's beautiful. It's got a little mellow sweetness behind it. It's very rich. It does have more of those tobacco notes. It finishes with like a, a, a dark licorice kind of character to it. Not in an artificial kind of craft beer, I'm sticking a lot of licorice in there, kind of in pastry stout kind of way, but, you know, on the back edge. But what I would say is very much on that black treacle, that molasses type flavors without the being really cloying sweet. It still does have a bit of sweetness to it. Finishes relatively dry. I'm really impressed, actually, because I don't know now. On the nose, I can get a bit of funk, but certainly not on the taste at all. Just from what I've read, it's not that they add Brett specifically, but something like the housed yeast has maybe a, a kind of a sluggish wild yeast in it that actually had a different name that wasn't even Brett. And I think only if you age it for a long time does it exhibit those characters. So what is the year of this? It doesn't have the year, but it does say best before June 22. So it might be worth trying to track how long mm, they put mm -hmm. on their bottles. Now, Harvey's is uh, on the South Coast, isn't it? Sort of south of London, due south. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there is a description on here. Do you want me to read it out? Sure. It says, the style Imperial Russian Stout and the name Albert Lecoq are synonymous. In the early 1800s, the hmm. Belgian Air Lecoq exported Imperial Stout from England to Russia and the Baltic area. It's interesting that they say Belgian because um, I believed he was, um, that this family were Flemish and French Huguenots living in Britain in exile. But there we go. Mark sent an article to me about this very topic not too long That's ago. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And I, you're absolutely correct. Really? I mean, that's what, you know, part of my, my mantra is like, you know, it's just, just because it was written on a beer label doesn't mean it was true. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the internet, right? Yeah, you can't believe everything written on a beer label. They actually set up their own brewery, Air Lecoq, after the, all the export, they set one up in Estonia in the early 1900s. It does still survive, 
But all the British investors thinking, oh, yeah, we'll make the beer there and save all the money on costs. They all lost out because of like World War One and the Russian <laughs> Revolution. And, they didn't uh, anticipate the 20th century very well. Yeah. No, that's right. <laughs> but it still exists as Estonia's biggest brewery. Okay. And I guess that the motivation was that the import taxes became so high yes. that it just made more financial sense to brew it in Estonia and then to distribute from there. Yeah. Of course, over here, we were not able to get any Harveys or any Courage or anything like that. So we did pick up Samuel Smith's Imperial Stout, which is one that's been around for quite a while. And so I think if you're on this side of the Atlantic and you're looking for an Imperial Stout made in Britain, that might be one of your only options. It's going to be about as good as you can do these days. Well, I think we want to fast forward a little bit to how this reverberated in the American craft brew scene. I'm pretty happy that we're going to get to go to the U.S. now because uh, this is just like <laughs> the IPA podcast where we didn't get to drink. I know. I'm um, sorry, guys. It was your turn first, but I think this is great. It's time for us to crack one. And this is a classic here in the U.S. up in Northern California, right? That's uh, right. Fort Bragg. This is one from North Coast Brewing Company. This is one of the earliest American Imperial Stouts I ever had, and I would not even say one of. It is the earliest American Imperial Stout I ever had, Old Rasputin. Have you heard of this beer, Nick? I've heard of it. It's one I have not tried. So I, I look back through the notes of when things came to the U.S. and you know when Imperial Stouts started to show up. You know, one of the things I noticed is in the mid-90s or early 90s, like if you look at the Great American Beer Festival... I mean, they didn't even have a category for Imperial Stouts. So they had just strong beers and stouts or whatever. And what I did find is in the 1996 World Beer Cup, and so that's a pretty big competition, which encompasses not only the U.S., but the world. The gold medal winner was Old Rasputin. And so this is definitely one of the early ones. And then it went on to win lots and lots of awards since then. So this dates back at least to the mid-1990s. So do you think when this won the World Beer Cup, that's where a lot of kind of people went, hello? I mean, I think it probably did influence people. I, I will say that the next GABF, Imperial Stout, became a category. So this rings in at 9%, Nick. We're getting a little more respectable here. Okay, that is quite respectable, isn't it? Mine's also 9%, by the way. The Harveys. Yeah. My first impressions after drinking the Samuel Smiths is this has got a lot more roasty bitterness to it. Definitely. Yeah, so a lot more coffee flavor comes out. Um, the Samuel Smiths was sweeter. I would have to say, if I had to guess, I would think this has either gone to a lower gravity or maybe more highly hopped or, you know, got the roast bitterness. I mean, all of those things make it a little bit, you might say, more balanced. Mm -hmm. It does finish quite dry, which probably amps up that bitterness just a bit as well. So as we were saying before about the history of certainly on the English side of things, using roasted barley and was not allowed by law, uh, which is why it was all the black malt instead. So it does change the character of the beer. It wasn't, you know, it was the Irish who were adding roasted barley to, to, to their beers. Um, now you can do what you like, so it's all okay. <laughs> That's right. When Guinness, I mean, actually in March, we're going to come back and talk about Irish dry stouts, but they were using the roasted barley. When they started, that would have not been legal in, in England, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. I mean, as as a, as brewers, I mean, it's it's much of a muchness, really, isn't it? I mean, 
we're talking subtle nuance, I think, if you're using a black malt or a roasted barley. I think you get more like tannin bitterness off the black malt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think, you know, I think the roasted gives more of those kind of coffee and dark chocolate notes. I was kind of interested because earlier we were talking about in the old days, in the historical stouts, they would have used um, brown malts or amber malts. Actually, I've never brewed with those malts. Do you have any experience with those malts? I do, but um, unfortunately, the brown malt that we use these days that we have access to is not the same as brown malt. It's it's the same name, but brown malt had diastatic power in the days of old. It doesn't anymore. I think probably what we call amber malt now is probably closer to a brown malt. Okay. Um, but also the the type of barley that was being used as well would have had a big influence. So the varieties have changed that they're using, especially for like the speciality months so that they'll no longer be using the the kind of like the chevaliers and the plumages, which have very different flavors. You know, we've been using heritage malts quite a lot. The chevalier, which we use quite often, brings like tones of apricots and grass, which is completely different than your kind of like multi bread character of like your marisotta. This is speculation, but I think that would have an effect if you were producing like an amber malt out of, a malt like that, I think you would end up with something very different tasting than what's available now. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and I guess it goes to show that even if you have the recipe from 200 years ago, that doesn't necessarily mean you can make a beer that tastes just like what they were drinking in 1800. No, absolutely not. Now, if we go back to a past episode of this podcast, we drank one of your beers on the new wave of British heavy metal beers. We had the Treacle Toffee Stout which is still oh, that's right. really a, one of my favorite beers. Yeah, Tell us a little bit about you know the modern-day version of Stouts at the Steam Machine. When we were early days of starting the brewery, um, you couldn't really get Imperial Russian Stouts on the market. And Black Sheep Brewery, who are a Yorkshire-based um, traditional real ale brewery, who sometimes do like un- unusual things they brought out an imperial russian stout i think it was 7.8 percent which you know back in those days it was like bloody hell 7.8 percent <laughs> that's pretty strong for like, the brits i'm getting two of them um, <laughs> and we were kind of like inspired by those and that would have kind of been 2012 as well so there still wasn't the pastry stout movement really and so we kind of combined those two things when we said, okay, we want an Imperial Russian Stout. I thought all Imperial Stouts were just called Imperial Russian Stouts back then. And we took those lessons of big crystal, restrained with chocolate and roast. And at the time, milk stouts were kind of becoming popular and they were only 4 or 5%. And I was like, no, I want this thick. I want lactose in it. All the descriptions for how you brew an Imperial Stout all said, mashing low, don't add lactose, you know, all the body, low crystal. And we're like, oh, we're doing the complete opposite. We're putting, <laughs> we're putting crystal in, we're putting lactose in. And what we did, which was very different, because they all said, you know, use an English ale yeast um, to exhibit, you know, fruity esters and stuff like that. We used, like, the Chico strain, the West Coast strain. So as we said, okay, well, we're already mashing in high. It's got lactose in there. So I don't think we need to worry about um, having some body left behind. Um, and we want all of those flavors that we've put in there. We want to just make this sing about the malt and, you know, the, 
and bulking the ABV with the the treacle anyway was you know ten percent or so of the the grist was the black treacle in there, um, and in the early early recipes we had a late hop addition of sterling, which is an American mm. kind of spicy hop. But when sterling ran out and I couldn't get any the next year due to the hop shortage in our early days of commercial brewing, it just was emitted and then just disappeared forever. <laughs> well, it was uh, it was a delicious beer. Do you still make that beer? We do. In fact, what we did um, this year, we split the batch three ways. We added like honey to one. We added a load more Muscovado brown sugar to another. And then we added vanilla paste and sea salt to another to get like a salted caramel kind oh, of flavor, yeah, yeah. A, a honeycomb. So we ended up with the classic alongside three different versions, a post-fermentation, like added other things to mm -hmm. it and allowed them to ferment out. Well, the solid caramel was beautiful. And what the salt does, you know, salt reduces bitterness. So it tasted even sweeter and more decadent than the original but still not pastry, a standard spoon up. It was still on the kind of like... Still a beer, so to speak. Still a beer, yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love all beers. I'm not, sure, I'm not being critical. Sure. But it's just not what we wanted to achieve, mm. you know. Well, I think that's a great segue for us to go see our friend Bill Kippen, yep. a local home brewer here in Columbus. He has brewed a lot of adjunct stouts. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about barrel aging and then all of the, you know, get into the pastry stouts a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's a long story, but, you know, we're willing to put in the work. <laughs> Someone's got to do the hard work. Thanks so much, Nick, for coming on the show again. I did promise at the beginning that if you wanted to say a little bit about the Fellowship of Beer, you could do so. And so this might be a good time to do that. One of the big aims of the Fellowship of Beer is to make education of beer fun and easy and accessible. And the other big part is to connect beer lovers worldwide. So we're hoping to bring you all a lot of content from different people in different places as the next couple of years unfold. And we're hoping to be out there with people and learning about what defines a beer experience, about whether it's sat in a cozy English pub with a pint or whether we're at a beer festival somewhere or whether we're on the beach eating some delicious Californian seafood, watching the sun go down, you know, whatever makes that wonderful beer experience. That's really what we want to explore to get the heart of. So a lot of lofty ambitions and a lot of fluff there, a bit like a modern imperial stout. But <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, it's about uh, enjoying beer and sharing our enthusiasm for it. No new story there. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fantastic. And we can catch you on all like social media channels, obviously, the Fellowship of Beer. Uh, you got a proper website? Proper website and everything. Like, even registered as a company, like Grown Ups, you know, we're doing it properly. We've been doing really well on uh, TikTok, YouTube. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and join us on there and listen to us. If you've got two minutes while you're sat on the loo, We've got videos for you. That <laughs> I like, I like how that know. rhymes. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> Finish with a bit of poetry. That's right. Well, hey, good drinking with you, Nick, as always, and also sharing the stories of the beers of old. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me, and um, hope to do it again sometime yeah. soon. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. That was great catching up with Nick as always. 
Always good to catch up with Nick. Yeah, got the lowdown on history of stout. And while we're in America, we brought a guest down from Powell, Bill Kippen. He is a home brewer, and great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Pat. Pleasure to uh, be spending the afternoon with Columbus's beer elite. So, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. very, uh, very excited for this. Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, great to have you. We've already had a couple stouts with Nick. We've got a pretty heavy menu here in front of us. I see five Imperial stouts we're going to drink. It's ambitious, to be sure. Man, Pat, I thought three was the magic number. <laughs> we're stepping up our game this time. You know, we'll go to great lengths for the listener to try and give them the full story. Oh, yeah. Well, we might as well then get into it. You know, when we were talking with Nick, we had gotten up almost to the year 2000, right? We were drinking an old Rasputin and talking about the World Beer Cup in 1996. Now let's move into the first decade of the 21st century. And one thing that I wanted to note, you know, we're based here in Ohio, and if you look back at the records of the GABF, actually Ohio had a great run with the Imperial Stouts. So the first year that that even became a category at the GABF was in 1997. But then several beers over the next dozen or so years took home uh, some hardware. In 1999, a beer called Fat Cat from a brewery I don't know about, because I assume it's not here anymore, Liberty Street Brewing in Akron was the bronze medalist. The most awarded Ohio beer in the Imperial Stout category is by Thirsty Dog, their Siberian Knight. Bronze medalist in 2003 and 2006, and then a gold medal in 2005. Oh, that's pretty good. Well, let's see. Then we move on to a couple gold medals for another Akron brewery, Hoppin' Frog, um, for their beer, Boris the Crusher. That was a gold medalist in 2008 and 2011. You know, we don't go up there enough. It's kind of cool place to go, mostly because it overlooks the hangars that hold the Goodyear blimps. Oh, wow. That's a cool spot. Yeah, it's like right across the street, which is kind of neat. And it's a very unique structure that they keep these blimps in up there. I have seen a blimp hanger before uh, on the Oregon coast. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Wow, okay. Well, future podcast in Akron, huh? Not against it. I was looking back at the notes we did an Imperial Stout Blind Taste Test several years ago. You were in on that, Mark. Yep. And I was looking back at the notes of that one, and it really stood out from all the other beers as being really aggressive with the roastiness and I think with the hops and with everything. It's not a beer for the timid. It's a big beer. Super solid, yeah. for sure. And then the last beer I want to mention is a beer that actually started life, or at least my first knowledge of it, would be the winner of the Barley's Homebrew Competition. And that is Anastasia, Russian Imperial Stout, from Weasel Boy. In the Homebrew Competition was before Weasel Boy became a thing, but Jay Wentz, who's the head brewer there and the co-founder, he took it all the way and it won a bronze and a gold at the GABF. Yeah, awesome. Well, there's a lot talking about beer, but maybe um, we should... <laughs> Sip a little bit of beer while we're I'm talking I'm going to say it. if we're going to get through five Imperial Stouts, Pat, time is of the essence. So as we get into discussing barrel-aged beer, we have got from Epic Brewing a triple barrel Big Bad Baptist. And this is a 2017 release. So this has had a little time in the bottle as well as in the barrel. I brought this beer, well, first of all, because Big Bad Baptist is an awesome beer. Phenomenal. Yeah. And this was a gift from Bill. 
to me, and I thought, wow, this would be a great time to crack it open. I'm glad you cellared it. Not overly boozy, like the rum comes through a little bit, which is really nice on this stout. Sure, and like smooth rum. Very so, Sometimes smooth. those rum beers can be kind of harsh. Yeah. This this one, I think, comes through really, really nice. I don't detect any heat at all, like no alcohol burn or anything off of this. What is the ABV on this? Uh, 11.4. Oh, 11.4. Sessionable Imperial Stout. Session, well, and so here's the thing. So Epic <laughs> yeah. Brewery started in Utah, and they're still based in Utah. They're also in Colorado. But to brew big beers, high ABV in the state of Utah, is a pretty ambitious endeavor. Oh, yeah, because the laws are pretty Correct. wacky there. Correct. I kind of like their laws a little bit because that way, when you're drinking on tap, you can have as many beers as you want if the place will let you and still walk away from it because they're so sessionable. If you're opening a bottle, it can be of a higher weight, right? It can. Where it gets really interesting in Utah, it's against the law to have more than two drinks in front of you that are above four ABV. Okay. So your sampler, your flight, can't do it in Utah. That's which interesting. Is kind of a bummer. <laughs> and there's a cap also on how strong a draft beer can be, right? Is it five percent? I think it's actually four in drafts. In fact, so if you go to Epic Tap Room in Salt Lake, they call it the tapless tap room because they're just opening bottles. Yeah, makes it's sense. It's illegal to tap it. That is kind of crazy. But you do get a lot of good sessionable beers out in Utah, I would say, because they have to. I mean, if they want to pour it on draft. Correct. I pick up a real nice uh, coconut note in here, too. Okay. This is the triple barrel. Can we go over why it's called triple barrel? So Epic, they age this in spirits barrels. In this case, they've got the rum and the whiskey. And then green coffee beans, which they actually, they age the green coffee beans in an old whiskey barrel as well. And then the coconut. Interesting. It's all kinds of barrels involved here. Absolutely, yeah. They've done a lot with this. They went on and they did, you know, quadruple barrel, quintuple barrel, sextuple barrel. <laughs> you can make a really good argument, honestly, that my opinion, I mean, the triple barrel may be the very best. This is really nice. So I think we should go over when exactly barrel aging became a thing in Imperial Stouts. That's right, because when we were talking to Nick about the British Imperial Stouts, that's not a thing that they did. I mean, they would age the beer in these big wooden vats. But that's a different thing than what we're talking about aging it in a spirits barrel. That's right. This is one of these cases in beer where you can trace it back to a single brewery and a single beer. And that beer is the Goose Island Bourbon County brand stout. Oh, and that's still sought after today. Goose Island is a pretty different place now than it would sure. have been in 1995. Yeah. They've kept that beer going, and, and probably it's more readily available today than it has ever been, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Find any grocery store now. It comes out around Thanksgiving every year, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's the uh, Black Friday. That's right. It's typically when that's available. Now, a really good uh, recount of how this happened is given in the book Barrel-Aged Stout and Selling Out by Josh Noel, which is about the founding of Goose Island and their growth and then their acquisition by AB InBev. One note back to an earlier episode of the podcast is the brewer for at least a year or two in the early days for Goose Island was none other than Victor Asimovich III, who was our guest on the All Things Bach podcast. Now, that particular book, actually, Bill, you kind of turned me on to it. It's an excellent book. Um, Fantastic book. Do you remember the story about how that idea of barrel-aging stouts came about? Yeah, so Greg, uh, he was the son. Uh, so father-son, you know, kind of started Goose Island. 
And, you know, Greg was very accomplished brewer, did a lot of good things, and wanted to do something kind of funky, and had these bourbon barrels, and had this idea that they would put beer in a bourbon barrel and just see what would happen. You know, a lot of discussions around really what beer should you use. Um, you know, stout, imperial stout seems to make a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Big beer. And it was wildly successful. I, I think Greg was was shocked how good it was. That release became a really big deal. And it was bigger and bigger every year and harder and harder to find just because it was so big. When AB bought Goose Island, that was the big concern for a lot of people is, you know, what is going to happen to Bourbon County? And, you know, Goose Island is a very different place, as you mentioned, but that beer is really fantastic. You know, when I think about my uh, my beer buddies, shout out here to Ruby Red Boys, you know, a lot of them have kind of shifted to bourbon. And it's not that I dislike bourbon. I, I like bourbon. But my opinion, and credit to Greg Hall, the best thing you can do with bourbon to me is put beer in those barrels. I think it's fantastic. And while, you know, I enjoy a little snort of bourbon, man, I'll take a bourbon barrel aged out any day. Yeah, I mean, I think also a lot of the flavors that come from the bourbon barrel, you know, in particular, the vanilla is just so harmonious with the kind of chocolate flavors that are already in an imperial stout and the coffee and, and those things. Bill, this was a gift to Pat? Correct. And it boomeranged. Correct. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> I'm going to start giving Pat some beer. I could have. <laughs> yeah. Well, and all the listeners out there, that goes out to you, too. If you want to get on the show and you give me some beer, uh, it could happen. Now, we might say one thing about bourbon barrels, because you could age, as Epic has done here, in other kinds of barrels. And many people will know this, but, you know, by law, the bourbon barrel can only be used once to make bourbon. And, That's correct. Right. So then you've got kind of a supply. I have, actually, a bourbon barrel for my uh, rain barrel at my house that I bought at uh, Oakland Nursery, because I think there used to be a, a glut of these barrels. Yeah, no, no more. And it is kind of cool that, you know, you get that second use. And yeah, so some can end up kind of boozy, especially mm -hmm. on the first use. It's amazing, though, at a brewery, you can use those three and four times and you're still extracting some good flavors out of them. And it's kind of neat that they can be reused in that way and then eventually end up as your rain barrel. Exactly. <laughs> if anybody wants some rainwater, just, just come by the house. Do you guys know where like the vanilla flavor comes from? I mean, if I were to go get you a two-by-four and you licked it, it wouldn't taste anything like vanilla. I mean, it does come from the wood, though. Yes, it does. And it is a very specific wood if it is a bourbon barrel. And what wood would that be? It would be a white oak. But then they also char the inside. And I think That's the right. charring process is pretty important to create that vanillin, which I think basically comes from the cellulose in the wood. Okay, yeah. You get kind of a different vanilla flavor out of a barrel than you would from a vanilla bean. Absolutely. But that does kind of take us in the direction of, you know, not only did people start aging imperial stouts in barrels, but then people said, well, we should put some other things into these beers, right? And I think a lot of the other things that got put in, at least in the early stages, were inspired by let's just amp up some of the flavors that come either from the malts or from the barrel. Now, these days, it could be just about anything. It could be blueberry pancakes, donuts, ice cream, brownies, cobbler, yeah. uh, birthday cake. I mean, it's through the roof <laughs> at this point when you get into pastry stouts. 
how far people can go with the adjuncts. Yeah. Aren't we about ready to crack another one? And this is a local beer, right, Pat? Yep. We're going to have a local beer. We're going to have the Breakfast Barrel Dire Wolf from uh, Wolf's Ridge Brewing here in Columbus. I don't think we can go wrong here. This is going to be pretty good. How old is this, Pat? Have you had it on the shelf for a while? It was bottled one year ago. Bottled okay, cool. 2021. Got a rich head. Well, on the nose, I'm getting bourbon, getting that roasty malt character. It does smell amazing. I'm not sure from the nose I would pick up the maple. It's really rich. It's got a really rich flavor. I wonder if this has a little lactose. Real full body. Real sweet, good mouthfeel. Yeah. Oh, the mouthfeel is excellent. Just very, very silky smooth, I would say. It's luxurious. It is luxurious. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I'll tell you what, Dire Wolf, Chris doesn't mess around with those products. Yeah, definitely a local favorite. I mean, this is a beer that people would line up to buy, and with good reason. So this comes in at 10.8. Smooth, like 3.3. Yeah, good folks at Wolf's Ridge. Cheers. The coffee is really nice in this beer, which, you know, Chris is kind of a master of using coffee and has you know, won a lot of awards for the Daybreak, the coffee cream ale. But he uses coffee in all kinds of beers. Do you remember when we went down for the coffee uh, extravaganza? Yeah, event? that was quite a long time ago. Had uh, One line was there. I remember we had a beer pairing along with also a coffee pairing. I yeah. still have that. The coffee it's like mug? a glass coffee mug. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I mean, I'll tell you, One Line does great coffee, too to go through all the character of those single beans and then try them in a beer side by side. It was a very, it was a wonderful yeah, morning. Yeah. Good way to start your Sunday. It was, it was a good morning. Yeah, that's right. Cause there were six different coffees and they had chosen a beer to go with each. I think maybe the most interesting one was a coffee Hefeweizen. Although now I don't know, I could tell you what it tasted like, but it was pretty good and just so unusual. So each of the six beers had coffee in them. Yes. Mm-hmm. In addition yeah. to the, you got to taste just the plain coffee and with it. you got it. to taste mm-hmm. the coffee that wow. went in it on its own in hot form. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. Well, and it should be noted, as I read on the label, actually there's two different kinds of coffee in this beer. So that kind of tells you that when the recipe is designed, it's not just like we want to add coffee to it. They're thinking about, oh, what would be the right flavors of coffee? And maybe we could put some complementary flavors of mm-hmm. coffee. I love coffee, but I'm not an expert enough to know of these two varieties, exactly what kind of uh, flavors they add. Well, the names of these coffee are quite a mouthful, and so is this beer. <laughs> now, what about the maple? It's a subtle thing if you get it. That's because I'm with you, Pat. I don't get a lot of maple in the nose. If I think about it real hard, maybe I get it. When I taste it, it's super sweet up front in a natural maple syrup kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I would think that syrup would dry out from fermentation. Yeah. Brewing with maple, it's not so easy to get the maple flavor into the beer, I don't think. It's like brewing with honey, which we've talked about in past episodes. It's kind of counterintuitive. I mean, it makes the beer less sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I read a review of a beer in a magazine the other day, and it finished with something, and I thought, that is a good way to think about it when you're using adjuncts. It said, the goal is to be flavorful, not flavored. That's good. The point being that all of the added ingredients, they've got to blend in and harmonize with the beer, and that doesn't always happen. Correct. There's some bad ones out there. Yeah, I'd say some of the modern brewing and pastry styles, they could take a note from that because they can be pretty over the top. Cloying. Mm-hmm. Or just flavors that stick out rather than blend in, um, and they overshadow the beer. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, speaking of Wolf's Ridge, at the moment of recording, actually, they've just opened up a new place here not too far from us, right? The Understory. Yeah, I'm eager to get in there and check it out. That space looks cool in the complex as well. It'll be a cool spot. I mean, it's in an old school that was built for kids with tuberculosis, if I'm not mistaken. And so the whole concept is to have a lot of open air in the place. Wow. We haven't been yet, but I'm really looking forward to checking it out. So on my list. I think they're going to specialize there, from what I've read, in barrel-aged lagers. Like really? Fooder-aged lagers, which if you haven't had it, you might say, well, that seems weird. But actually, those can be pretty darn tasty. Wow. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. All right. It wouldn't really be a complete episode that comes up to the modern day if we didn't talk about pastry stouts. And so I guess the question is, where does an imperial stout with adjuncts end, and where does a pastry stout begin? Or are they indistinguishable? I don't think there's a real fine line. What we just had from Wolf's Ridge was practically dessert. There's some desserts that hurt your teeth, and there's some desserts that don't. And I probably fall in line the same way as I'm drinking my beer. It's like, wow, I really appreciated those two ounces. Now maybe Pat would like some. (laughs) But then there's other beers where, I mean, I don't know. I think I could probably have killed that 22 of Wolf's Ridge. It's far from a crusher, but it was pretty good. Yeah, it went down pretty easy. Now we're really moving into self-described pastry stout territory, right, Pat? So we are now drinking a beer from Seventh Sun, another Columbus area brewery called, hopefully I'll pronounce this right, Kawa. And the reason why I picked up this beer is I was kind of researching this episode. I went to a website called Hop Culture, and they had, you know, a little bit of a blurb about what a pastry stout is. And then they had their top 10 pastry stouts across the whole U.S. from 2020. Reading at that list, I saw that one of them was from Columbus, and this Kawa from Seven Sun. It's got a lot of spice, But it's also not too much. I mean, you get that kind of clove, cinnamon, cardamom, which are all pretty pungent spices in and of themselves. But I don't think they're overused to where this is offensive. It's a nice blend. It's wonderful. And the coffee from Mission, you can't go wrong with Mission Coffee. I mean, we're back on the coffees with this beer, too. But they sure do go well with stouts. It's a solid nose on this. Like, I could just sit and huff this beer. Smells amazing. And can we just say, I mean, you know, we had the Wolf's Ridge, we had the Seventh Sun, and we were talking about all the different Columbus breweries. I mean, is it just a fantastic time to be in Columbus as a beer drinker? I mean, it's a fantastic time to be anywhere as a beer drinker. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't talked about some other amazing stouts that come out in Columbus. Like, we haven't talked about Steel Dawn and some of the stouts that Columbus Brewing Company makes. We haven't talked about Bourbon Meyer and some of the things mm. that Angelo makes down at Barley's. We're in pastry stout land here. Hoof-hearted, right? They do a lot. Hoof. They rock it. What about Bison from Homestead? You know, that is a very solid uh, barrel-aged beer, usually. Oh, yeah. Now, this one, Kawa, and it comes in a can, first of all, which is different than the other two. And the can has a very attractive art of a falcon, a hunting falcon. Well, what does Kawa mean? You tell us. Well, when I read that article, I had no idea, but I've since looked it up, and it's basically the term for Arabic coffee. Okay. And here's what the ingredients are. Imperial stout infused with mission coffee beans, cardamom, clove, cinnamon, and ginger. So it's kind of like Ohio Christmas ale meets imperial stout with coffee, right? Yeah, it is. And man, 
as you list those, and I already picked up a few on my own, you just made a list of all the sensory I'm experiencing right now on those flavors and aromas. So that Arabic with the coffee and the spice, that, that is a very common theme. I had a friend who's from Iraq. He came back and he had some coffee for me. He had one bag infused with cinnamon and another bag uh, infused with cardamom. And amazing. And it's the type of brew that, you know, you brew that, your, your kitchen, your house smells amazing as you're brewing it. Real strong spice. Okay, so that's a real common thing then. Absolutely. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah, and not holding back. Uh, I brew them each in my espresso machine. You're going to taste that cinnamon or that cardamom the next two or three batches. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty intense, heavy, but it's, yeah. But it's I love cardamom, cardamom coffee. It was a fantastic flavor, and I think this nails it really well. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, no one spice sticks out above the others. I think it's all very nicely integrated. And what you're saying about, you know, this is not supposed to be subtle. I think that would go with the whole ethos of a pastry stout, right? Yeah, exactly. And as non-subtle as it is, this is so drinkable. Okay, so this is in a 12-ounce can. I would easily finish that on my own. I would Absolutely. I would have no problem throwing down a pint of this. It's borderline refreshing for a pastry stout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really... I mean, I think it's less decadent, actually, than the other two beers we've had. It is a mere 9.5%, <laughs> which is... So it is the lightest beer today. But... Exactly. But again, I mean, a good nod to Seven Sun, right? Because as they're, they're taking on kind of that uh, Arabic take on coffee and sweets, because you go throughout the like, Middle East and even, even in Europe, desserts, sweets, not nearly as sweet as what we have here in America. And I think that beer really captures that. And I think that's part of why it's so refreshing in this lineup because it kind of helps cut some of that really decadent stuff that we've had. And, you know, it's still decadent, but just in a different, not as sweet kind of way. Yeah, it's nice. Well, hey, kudos to Colin and the rest of you over at Seven Sun for throwing together another tasty beverage. Yeah, it's a beautiful beer. Now, here's the thing about pastry stouts that baffles me a little bit. I mean, a stout inherently is big and sweet but a lot of times then they they will add lactose to it and so when you you got a 12 percent beer that's already going to be you know finishing gravity of 10 3 or or even higher do you need to add lactose to make it sweet but hey you know who am i to say it's absolutely true i think that beer tastes in this country in general have skewed sweeter over the last uh decade or so yeah you don't want to hear my theory on that. <laughs> All right, so Bill, I think at this point, we should probably get out one of your home brews. And I know you brought a couple for us and also talk to you about what goes into home brewing some of these great adjunct stouts, because you really do a lot of adjunct imperial stouts. So I, I do a few. I think imperial stout is a nice backdrop to do some things with. I've got a pretty good malt bill for Imperial Stout that I like playing with. So this that I've got for you, this is Fist of Rage. Comes in about 9% ABV, air quotes, barrel-aged Imperial Stout. And what barrel aging did you do? So, and I've done this a few times. So I got the wood spirals, which I soaked in Cleveland whiskey and... I don't know if you're familiar with Cleveland Whiskey. I, I love their story. I love just the innovation and how Jim Licks goes about things. So that's why Are they I, in Cleveland? He's in Cleveland. 
Um, his business model was basically, I know we talked earlier with the barrel aging, you know, white oak, right? That's how you, you get bourbon. And there are arguably, I think, more bourbon barrels aging in Kentucky than people. What puts the cost in bourbon is just the time factor. And so Jim Licks at Cleveland Whiskey, he's got this patented process where he basically takes the barrel and forces the flavor out. And he's won a lot of contests, uh, blind tasting contests. He, he stacks up really well. And, and I like his whiskey, so that's what I use. Okay, cool. How does he do that? How does he force the flavor out? It's a patented process. Uh, that's all I know. Oh, but he, he trade can do, secrets. His 15-year equivalent takes him about 20 hours. No way. Yeah. That's weird. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and it, it's impressive, um, especially when you look at the hardware that he's, he's earned. Um, so okay. I just, I just think okay. it's an interesting okay. story and I, and I do love Ohio. It's my second home. I know, you know, Pat, you and I are both Idahoans who have found ourselves in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do love Ohio. Cleveland whiskey, it's from Ohio. So that's what I use. I've done this with the heavy toasted oak as well as the light toasted. I think the heavy toasted gives it just a lot more flavor, a lot more character. So I'm, I'm curious to know what you think. And I will say it's always daunting to bring anything to drink in front of you guys. Oh, <laughs> I mean... It, we just cracked a bottle actually over the holidays when we were having a little game night with our spouses, yep. playing Wingspan, of all things. Look that up. That's an obscure <laughs> reference. I don't think everybody's playing Wingspan out there, but I feel like birds. I would say right off the top, the spirit is evident, which I kind of like. I mean, I don't know how long you have had this in the bottle, but it tastes pretty bright, actually. Compared to, I know, the last couple beers, other than a Seventh Son, which was pretty inundated with spices, were fairly rounded in age, whereas this seems a little more bright. And it is. So I brewed this in May. I bottled this in late November. Okay. So it, it's still a little young. This is the second time I've done this exact recipe. It is, I will tell you, in a year. You know, it definitely evolves a bit. But yeah, it, it is brighter, to your point, definitely, mm -hmm. uh, just because it is fresher. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it a lot. It's also... Very drinkable. And we mentioned this on the other three. For drinking beers with such a high ABV, not much alcohol evident in this. Although, obviously, you're aware you're drinking beer, but it's not hot at all. Agreed. Real nice, Bill. Thank you. I think the spirit character, actually a little bit more evident in the nose than it is in the taste for me. Second that. I think that's a good thing because it's nice when the nose beguiles you in with something but I will say when I'm drinking a stout, I don't want to feel like I'm doing a boilermaker. You know what I mean? I don't want to feel like I'm drinking a stout that someone just poured some bourbon or some whiskey into it. And uh, this one is very harmonious. Oh, yeah. It is in the aroma. I get a lot in the retronasal aroma, like right after I take a drink. Agree. Like I get that come back around through the senses. And yeah, it's very nice. This is a pleasant beer, Bill. Totally. I think you just nailed it on the retronasal. So, Bill, when you think about this stout, for me, a stout starts with the malts. Tell us a little bit how you designed the malt bill on this mm. beer. So, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of a neophyte with home brewing. I think this, is, this will be my fifth year now going into it. It's amazing. I mean, it's, as you guys know, it's, it's a pretty good learning curve. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's not something you learn real quick. Uh, it certainly made a lot of mistakes. I, I feel like I finally, just over the last couple of years, I finally gotten to a point where I can do things consistently. If I want to replicate something, I can. And I have tremendous respect for professional brewers who do it day in, day out, because that's hard. It's really, really hard. You know, as far as selecting the malt bill, I know you're a chemist, Pat, and, you know, our conversations, you, 
can get very technical and there's a lot of chemistry that goes into it. For me, you know, I'm a cook. I cook as a hobby. And so my approach to beer is, is very similar. I will, when I have a style or recipe I want, I'll research, you know, a lot of different ones out there and just kind of look for commonalities and look to see kind of what makes sense with my own experience. So, you know, this malt bill, this is the, the result of that. First, it's just, you know, regular imperial stout without any kind of adjuncts. And, and I liked it. I mean, to me, I was like, yeah, this is a good base imperial stout. would like to do something more with it. And so that's why I've, you know, I've played with it in, in terms of doing the, you know, the, the barrel aging um, and just some other things to, to kind of have fun with it. When I think about the malt bill behind an imperial stout, and I'm, I'm going to just confess, actually, I've never homebrewed an imperial stout. You have the opportunity to do something which is you've got that roasty, bitter coffee from, you know, the dark roasted malts, like your chocolate malts, like maybe roasted barley. And then you have the sweetness of the caramel crystal malts. And I think there's something magical that happens when you put those two things together. And I see in your recipe that you've done exactly that. Yeah, I would agree. To me, it's like a chocolate chip cookie, right? I mean, yeah. you have that, the sweetness of like your dough, but then it's kind of the bitter and the roastiness that comes through in the chocolate that rounds that out. And I do think it's a nice uh, balance on the palate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a chocolate chip cookie not made with milk chocolate. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Dark, dark chocolate. Dark, dark chocolate. chocolate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bittersweet every time. Yeah, come on, Pat. What kind of layman cookie maker are you over there? <laughs> well, we got a broad audience, you know. I uh, some people make chocolate chip cookies a lot of different ways. So I just wanted to be, you know, clear with people. Now, when you're brewing a big beer like this, high gravity beer, do you have to do anything special so that the yeast uh, doesn't mm. crap out? Or I mean, when it comes to the fermentation, and also what yeast did you use for this beer? So I used Omega. English ale yeast. You know, I love Omega. You turn me on to Omega. There's super easy to use, which I really like. And I do a starter. I've become a fan of doing starters. That came as a direct result, Pat, of one of the meetings with you. I'd had two homebrews that did not do well. I couldn't figure out what went wrong. Uh, you had introduced me to AJ. Yeah. Actually, uh, we should say that AJ was a former guest of the show, and we talked about Baltic Porters, which is not more than a stone's throw away from an Imperial yeah, it's Stout. it's a very close cousin. Yeah, AJ, you know, it was kind of funny. He was shocked I wasn't doing starters. And, and my response was, you know, I've done 20 of these. I've never had a starter, and they've all been good. And he chuckled, and he said, you've been lucky. <laughs> and <laughs> That sounds like AJ. And I decided, you know what, I, I don't want to risk it again, because, you know, as a home brewer, I mean, that's a whole day of my weekend. Yeah, probably about a hundred bucks into it, and then I'm pouring it down the drain because it didn't turn out. AJ really impressed upon me. He said, "If you do a starter, you know." Yeah, having that yeast really get a really strong start is so important. And it really is. It's very valuable. Yeah. So that was. I mean, kudos to AJ. Thanks, AJ. It's nice because you know I do a starter when I get done brewing in the afternoon. It's usually about three o'clock, and by the time I go to bed, that airlock's just bubbling away. Gives them a, a lot more fighting chance. I would say especially when you're talking about beers of this gravity. And I think the choice of using an English ale yeast is a good one because it throws off those fruity esters, which is a really nice complement to the other flavors in a stout. And beyond that, the level of attenuation is a little lower than some other yeasts. And in general, you know, you're not brewing an imperial stout to be dry and crisp, right? You want some residual sweetness. So... I think English ale yeast is a great choice. Well, we haven't talked about hops all day, and you know it's not 
really an integral part of an imperial stout. But having the right level of IBUs is kind of important. What kind of IBUs do you shoot for when you go for an imperial stout, Bill? So I'm not going for something that's really in your face. You know, I want something that's going to complement what's going on. So I really, I mean, hops on this are pretty light. There's less than, I think it's one point, yeah, 1.75 Simcoe that I put at the start of the boil. And then at knockout, I'm putting two ounces of Cascade. So, I mean, really, I mean, you've got less than four ounces of hops for a whole five-gallon batch. Okay. So not real hoppy, just enough to kind of balance it out. Because, you know, for an Imperial Stout, it's a big beer, and I think you want some of that sweetness. Well, Imperial Stout is kind of an excessive beer, and we're going for what you might say a bit of an excessive session, but, you know, we wanted to get Bill's take on a variety of things that he's done, and this one, which is called Forager Imperial Stout, is one that I've had before, and I just absolutely loved it. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about this beer. So, this is a fun one. Um, One of the things I discovered when I moved to Ohio was hickory nuts. Hickory nuts, the hickory trees grow all over Ohio, uh, shagbark hickory, and they're kind of a messy tree, but they, they have the hickory nut, and the hickory nut is amazing. It, it is, my opinion, the best eating nut out there. You don't find them commercially because they're nearly, I and mean, they're just really painful to shell and harvest, so they're not really commercially viable, but it is it is worth your time, and so I've I've harvested hickory nuts over the years. I've grown with them, or I've, I've baked with them. And it was one of those flavors that I always thought would be really amazing in beer. And so, you know, I had kind of my imperial stout malt bill figured out. And I thought it'd be really fun to try to infuse this with some hickory nut. Um, if you haven't had a hickory nut, think of a nut that tastes like cookie dough. And that's really what a hickory nut tastes like. So to pair that with beer... We were talking about pastry stouts earlier. Seem to kind of make a lot of sense. It's funny you say cookie dough because this is a very cookie-forward beer. It's a nice combination. I do like the nut character and what it does with that, you know, chocolate coffee base. So this is the last bottle I have. Whoa. <laughs> Ooh, this is about two years old at this point. I'm happy that the carbonation is just right. I'm always nervous yeah. opening anything uh, in front of you guys. And so... Oh, it's held up very nice. Beautiful um, label, too. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think the flavors are very well-rounded. I mean, consistent with that being about two years old. I can tell you a story that I can't remember when it was, sometime in uh, 2021. And you're so kind, oftentimes, to give me some beers. And sometimes they're big beers, and I'm like, you know, when you're just home alone, you're like, well, do I want to open a you know bomber of 10% beer tonight? And sometimes the answer is yes, but a lot of times it's no. And uh, I did one night, and it was, uh, it was this beer, and I was just blown away by how good it was and how well that the hickory nut flavor, and I actually haven't eaten a lot of hickory nuts, I'm pretty sure, or not to my knowledge anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, how well that, that flavor, though, blended with the beer. So I want to do more with it because, Pat, I know you you do a lot with your beer, your uh, Noir, Noel, no, <laughs> what is no, it? Noir, Noir, Noel. Yes, uh, with a black walnut. Yeah. And, yeah. and that beer is fantastic. And you've played around a little bit in terms of how you infuse that nut flavor. I'm going to take a few learnings off of that because I do think there's an opportunity with this beer to really impart more hickory nut flavor 
you know, shelling them is a pain, but part of the reward in that, you can actually steep those shells in like a simple syrup and create just an amazing hickory syrup, which my family has enjoyed on pancakes. It's, it's amazing. Uh, we've given it away as gifts. And I think there's an opportunity to somehow leverage that maybe, you know, in, in my wort. And, and I want to kind of, I know you've done kind of a, a dry hopping method with some of the black walnuts. I'd like to try a similar thing with the hickory nuts too. Okay. You know, we talked about maple bourbon earlier, you know, people putting maple syrup into bourbon barrels. Maybe you should get a bourbon barrel and put hickory syrup. You'd have the market. You there know, it that, is. That's an amazing idea. I'm telling you, that hickory syrup, it is ridiculous. It's yeah. so wow. Yeah. Okay. okay, Pat, we got to start <laughs> getting our good graces in with Bill for next year's batch. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to try it. What I will say about brewing with black walnuts, a real inspiration was Jackie O's Oil of Aphrodite, which is a black walnut beer. And we talked about that at length on the October podcast with our friend Johnny. To this date, one of my favorite stouts in Ohio. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, so initially, and I was looking at a recipe, I put the black walnuts in and boiled them for about 30 minutes. That was in the first batch. And you get some black walnut flavor from that. And then, actually, I was talking to Patrick Gangwar, rest in peace, who was the brewer at both Kindred and then at Three Tigers, but started at Jackie O's. And I was talking to him once, and I said, well, how do you get all the nut flavor in the oil of Aphrodite? And he said, at every stage. you know. So they added it in the boil, and they also added it in what you might call the dry nut. And so now when I make that beer... I'd use about five ounces for about 30 minutes in the boil, and then I'd put about five ounces of nuts like after fermentation in the secondary. And that second addition makes a big difference. Kicks it up for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, when you did that, that last one, the nose on it, you could tell. Yeah, um, it, it really did uh, give you. It's fantastic. Well, thank you, Bill. I, I do appreciate it, and I, I was happy with the, with the 2020 version. It was uh it met my expectation. We did drink that beer on the West Flederen or Bust episode. Yeah, certainly. Indeed. Yeah. Earlier you were commenting, Bill, as a frequent listener of the podcast, that sometimes you can tell the difference in the tone of our voice at the end of the podcast than at the beginning <laughs> uh, after we've worked through quite a few beers. And, you know, when you're drinking Imperial Stouts, I'm sure when I listen back to this, that's also going to be true. But it's been a wonderful afternoon. I've just been so excited, actually, to drink these wonderful, decadent, expressive beers. Um, Mark, do you have any parting words? Yeah, I think before we get too carried away, we probably ought to sign off. But I definitely would say, you know, stick with us. The next couple of months are still going to be stout heavy. We've got a podcast coming up. We're going to be talking about some other variations of stout, the oatmeal stout, sweet stout, the oyster stout, maybe some other hidden gems. I don't know. Well, keep your eye open for the maid stout. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, White Christmas last month, Russian Imperial Stouts this month. That's Pat Woodward signing off. I'm Mark Richards-Bill. It was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure's all on the side of the table. Cheers. Cheers.